We turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We read the chapter taking for our text this evening the last verses of it, from verses 18 through the end of the chapter, verse 22. We hear the inspired, infallible Word of God. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the Word, they may also without the Word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold, or of putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, Be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts." And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And here follow the words of our text. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now also save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven 
and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved, the keynote of this passage is the fact that Christ suffered. The apostle has been addressing the reality of the suffering of the saints. And the suffering that takes place in all of the various contexts of life. Suffering with regard to the authority. Suffering in the context of the workplace. Suffering with regard to marriage. Various areas of our lives involve suffering. And in verse 17, it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. The emphasis not on the suffering because of sin and because of our failures, but that suffering because we are pilgrims and strangers. We're standing and living as God's children in this world. The believers to whom Peter was writing were suffering. And they were in heaviness through manifold temptations. They were suffering for conscience sake because of the faith that they confessed. And the apostle writes to encourage them and to strengthen them in the midst of that suffering. Reminding them of this powerful truth. Suffering runs in the family. You are suffering just as your eldest brother suffered. Your suffering is a part of that glorious suffering that Jesus Christ himself endured. How sweet that word also. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Are you poor? Christ became poor for your sake. Do you seem to have no place to lay your head? Christ had no place to lay his head. Are you tempted? Christ was tempted in every respect, like as we, yet without sin. Do you suffer? Christ suffered like no one of us has ever suffered. And so we're directed to Christ and the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And what was the result? What is the fruit of Jesus' suffering? They did not bring him down to destruction. They did not ruin him. Peter takes pains to demonstrate the suffering of Jesus Christ was used by God to exalt him. The sufferings that you and I experience for well-doing are not intended by God to destroy us. They're not intended to clip our wings and make it so that we are not able to attain the spiritual flights that we would desire. That suffering is used by God to lift us, to lift us higher in order that we might know the glory of God in a more full measure and the wonder of His power. That's the intent of this passage, to comfort the people of God in the midst of their suffering. And as we go away from the table of the Lord, we do so rejoicing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ and confessing our comfort and our hope with regard to our current struggles as we look to Christ and know the victory that's ours in Him. Victory in the way of suffering, noting the intense suffering of our Lord. Secondly, the victorious proclamation that He made. And finally, the blessed result. Verse 18 states, Christ was put to death in the flesh. As we well know, Jesus died the horrible death on the cross. 
And his death on the cross involved tremendous, unique suffering. The suffering of Jesus was divinely appointed. It was suffering for the most important cause. Sufferings that were sustained in the best possible manner. They were sufferings that were intended to show strikingly the positive end of divinely appointed suffering. That is, Jesus' suffering at the hands of His Heavenly Father was to demonstrate there is therefore now no condemnation. We will never have to suffer as He suffered. Now notice the passage identifies Christ as the one who suffered. We're familiar with the phrase Jesus Christ. Jesus being the personal name of the Messiah. Christ, a reference to the office that he occupied. The anointed one. So that the name Jesus Christ is not like Simon Peter or John Mark. A two-part name, a double name. Rather, it's more like John the Baptist or Herod the King. Jesus the Christ. Demonstrating his personal name, and then the office that he occupied and the work that God sent him to perform. He was highly exalted above all other rulers. And he was given a role and a place that he alone would occupy, set from everlasting to be the anointed of God. And now he assumes that high place to save his people from their sins. This exalted one, the Son of God, was called and qualified to serve as God's representative. He suffered. He suffered as the just one. He's free from sin. He's completely conformed to the will of His Heavenly Father. He desires only that which is good. And He suffered. He came into this world without any evil, without any sin. And He suffered. If the just one, the one in whom there is no sin, the one who is righteous and perfect, if he suffered, what do I expect? What do you expect? He who was perfect suffered, and he perfected suffering for us. He suffered for doing what was right. He never did anything that was wrong. Now, the sufferings of Jesus Christ were sufferings unto death from the hand of God. The once that we read here, Christ hath once suffered for sins, does not limit his suffering to just one isolated incident in his life, but it's meant to express the fullness of the one suffering that he endured his whole life long. His whole life, from the beginning of his life all the way culminating in his death on Calvary, involves suffering. And the emphasis here is on the unique character and nature of that suffering. The true nature of his suffering, none can know, save Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who endured it. Now, there's no way to depict that suffering. Men try to do it through pictures or through drama. There's no one that can begin to understand or to claim himself to have suffered the intensity of the sorrows that our Lord endured. He was a man of sorrows. And Psalm 90 talks about that. In verse 11, Behold and see all ye that pass by, if there be any sorrow like unto the sorrow wherewith the Lord afflicted him in the day of his fierce anger. 
That suffering was for me. It was for you. It was because of your and my sin. Now that's something that we need to meditate on. Why did Jesus have to suffer so? For my sin. And as we think upon that, there's a twofold response. How I hate my sin because I see what it required of my Lord. And how I love my Lord for what He did on my behalf. And for the suffering He was willing to endure for me. The more we understand and meditate on the suffering of Jesus Christ, the more that twofold fruit expresses itself in our lives. Our hatred for sin and our love for Christ and for the mercy that's in Him. Now we look this evening at three different points that are emphasized concerning Jesus' suffering here in this text. Jesus' suffering was penal, it was vicarious, and it was expiatory. Now to put it in simpler terms, it means that Jesus' suffering was suffering for divine punishment for sin, that's penal, the punishment of sin. It was vicarious, that is substitutionary. It was in the place of his people. And finally, it was effective to pardon his people from their sins and save them. It was expiatory. That is, it accomplished salvation. Now to look at each of those, first of all, it was penal. This means his suffering was suffering as a punishment for sin. He suffered for sin. The suffering of Jesus wasn't just disciplinary. Correcting him for some previous errors that he had involved himself in. You children know that Jesus never made any errors. It was not an attempt to make Jesus better than he was. So that he had to endure this suffering so that he could become better. Now it's true, the Bible teaches, that he learned obedience through his sufferings. But that doesn't mean that he was disciplined by those sufferings unto obedience. The rod and the reproof was not necessary to get him to obey. God's law was in his heart. He was perfectly obedient. The suffering of Jesus was not intended merely to give evidence of his work and to be an example to his followers. That's the way some would present Jesus' suffering. All of these purposes could be accomplished without any suffering. Jesus' suffering was intended to reveal the divine displeasure of God against sin. It was penal. It was suffering for sin. Jesus endured the divine wrath of God against the sins of his people. He was treated as if he was the greatest of all sinners. And now God's wrath was unleashed upon him. And why did he suffer? As a punishment for sin. He was stricken of God, marked as one that was divinely identified to suffer. Now, we'll never suffer for sin like Jesus did because his suffering was in our place and his suffering earns for us salvation. And that's the emphasis. He suffered once. The sins for which he paid for do not need to be paid for again. His suffering was for sin. And he paid the price of every last one of the sins for which he died. But secondly, flowing out of that and adding to it, it was vicarious. That is, he suffered the just for the unjust. It was substitutionary. 
Verse 18 emphasizes the just for the unjust. He was a substitute. That's the emphasis through all of the Old Testament sacrifices. A substitute was necessary that would stand in the place of the sinner and would take the wrath of God for the sins that had been committed. And throughout the Old Testament, all the sacrifices pointed to that idea, substitution. Jesus' sufferings were in our place as our substitute. And all of His sufferings were to rescue us from the punishment that we deserve. So that this doctrine is explicitly taught again and again in the Bible that Jesus stood in the place of specific sinners for us, His sheep. He was bruised for our iniquities. He died for the ungodly, laid down His life for His sheep. The purpose of His suffering to bring those for whom He died, those whom He substituted, to God. Now that's amazing. It was impossible to come to God. God is holy. Man is sinful. Jesus opened that way so that now those for whom He paid the price of sin were able to know fellowship and communion with the living God and to live in covenant with God forever. But finally... His suffering is expiatory. That is, it's effective. It accomplishes the purpose for which He ordained. His suffering was for sin in our place and it performed that wonder. What He suffered was sufficient to pardon the sins of all those whom He represented. And He did it perfectly. He brought us to God. That was the purpose of the suffering. He didn't suffer to make salvation possible for some. He suffered to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin. He suffered to save His people from their sins. The blood of Jesus Christ, therefore, cleanses from sin. And we face the wonder of the mercy and the grace of God. Jesus said, I have finished the work that Thou gavest me to do. There's no more suffering for sin for those who are found in Christ. This teaching stands in sharp contrast to the teaching of those who would insist man must add something of his own works in order that that contributes with the suffering of Jesus to accomplish salvation. No, Jesus did it all. He accomplished that salvation. This stands contrary to the lie of purgatory that says there's still that for which you need to suffer so that the suffering for sin was not enough. There's more that's required. And therefore, when you die, you still go to a place called purgatory to suffer yet for sin that Jesus didn't suffer for. This teaching, beloved, stands also sharply in contrast to the teaching that Jesus died for all men, but not all men are saved. Not all men go to heaven. The emphasis here is that every last one for whom Jesus died is saved. They go to heaven. And this is the truth then that limits the atonement. Of necessity then, the atonement is not for all men. It's only for some. And they're the ones who enjoy the fullness of that blessedness. This suffering our Lord endured. And this suffering culminated in the fact that He was killed. He was put to death in the flesh. 
according to verse 18. The word there is not so much expressing the violence of death as its effect. He did not die in vain. Jesus suffered and then he died. And his death was for the giving of life and the giving of his spirit for all those whom he represented. And that comes out again in the reference. Was quickened in the spirit. Verse 18. As a result of his suffering, he was killed. But he didn't stay in the grave. He was made alive by the power of the work of God. And he conveyed a life then to his people that they could never have apart from his suffering. His suffering and death were necessary to accomplish that life and that victory. That they might have eternal life. And that he might give that life to as many as the Father had given him. He then became a quickening spirit. And by the power of his spirit, we read, he went and he preached to the spirits in prison. Now we look at that carefully for a few moments. That's a startling passage that's explained in a lot of different ways. That Christ went and preached unto the spirits in prison. In verses 19 and 20, we have a reference of this event. Now this has been explained in a number of ways. First of all, some claim this refers to the fact that Jesus was preaching through Noah to the wicked people who lived at the time of Noah. Noah, we know, was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was preaching righteousness as he was building the ark. And through Noah, Christ preached to those disobedient, rebellious people that lived during the time of the flood. That position doesn't do justice to this fact. What about the fact that these men were spirits? The text talks here about preaching to the spirits. And what about the fact that they're portrayed as being disobedient during Noah's time? Spirits that were disobedient. And so we would be inclined to say that's not it. It's true that Christ was present preaching through Noah, but that's not what this is referring to. Others claim this text refers to sinners in general who are always under the bondage of sin and death. And Christ then is always preaching to these sinners through the apostles and now through the ministry of the gospel. Christ preached through Noah. He continues today to preach to those who are imprisoned to sin. And the reference then to all of us who experience the horror of sin and the imprisonment of that sin. Again, this view doesn't do justice though to this fact. He preaches to us as spirits. And what's the reference? And what's the intent of that? Others claim that Christ, between his death and his resurrection, went in a spiritual form to hell in order to preach to the devils and the fallen angels. Now, some say he merely went to preach. Others say he went to give them a second chance. And that becomes, in part, the argument of the Roman Catholics for purgatory saying that Jesus went to purgatory to reclaim those who had now suffered sufficiently for sin. But again, that explanation does not do justice. Christ went, we read, after he had been quickened. And so that's not between his death and resurrection. It's after his resurrection and likely even after his ascension. Not between the two of them. Also, Christ never offers salvation after the death of any man, woman, or child. He never gives sinners or angels a second chance. That's contrary to all of the Bible. How then do we understand this passage? 
Christ preached something after he had been quickened. And so that is after his resurrection and likely after his ascension into heaven. We read that he preached to spirits who were already in hell. They were in the prison of hell, not raised up yet, not having yet given bodies, but they were in spirits. They were the spirits of those who had lived during the time of Noah, who had persecuted the church, who were influential in seeking to the destruction of the church, even trying to destroy Noah. Now, what did Christ preach? And why did he go to these spirits who were in hell? Christ went in order to herald the victory that he had accomplished through his suffering and to declare the righteousness that he had earned for his people. The text speaks of preaching, but the word here that's used and translated for preaching is not the ordinary word for preaching. It's a different word. The ordinary word has the idea of evangelizing or proclaiming the gospel, the good news of salvation. That's not the idea here. The word simply is the word for herald, proclaiming tidings. And that was the nature of Jesus' message. Not good news, not words of salvation. Christ could not preach the gospel of good news to those already in hell. The Bible never teaches any kind of a second chance and never supports the idea that Christ preached the gospel in hell. Christ heralded, that is, he proclaimed the victory that he had attained through his suffering and death. After his ascension into heaven, he now appears in heaven and in hell. He had overcome the powers of darkness. He had destroyed the devil and all of his works. And he now, quickened by the Spirit, is ascended into heaven as the victorious Lord of all. As the victorious Lord, he declares now, he heralds this victory throughout all of heaven and throughout all of hell. Romans 20 verse 10 expresses the message in heaven. And I heard a loud voice saying, in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. The proclamation comes through heaven. The devil has been destroyed. He's been overcome through the Lamb. And Christ also proclaimed that same victory through hell. Specifically to those spirits who had persecuted the church and virtually destroyed the church during the time of Noah. There were only eight souls, only one family left during that time. Now we wonder, why? Why would Christ do such a thing? And the reason for this is in that phrase in verse 20. Once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. God's long-suffering is a reference to the attitude of God toward his people by which he allows his people to suffer for a time. A suffering that he knows is for their good and he knows is necessary to prepare them for their heavenly place. God's long-suffering, therefore, implies intense suffering on behalf of his people. Prior to the flood, that suffering was intense. It's hard for us to even imagine what the church was going through during that time. The church faced intense persecution. 
And we, the, we know that the Bible says that is a picture of what's going to happen before the end of the world. Only one family of the church was left in the world. A world that by conservative estimates could have included over 70 million people. So here's 70 million people given over to the pursuit of sin. Eight people who love the Lord. Eight people who constitute the church of Jesus Christ. The wicked world was persecuting the church so that it was almost completely eliminated from the face of the earth. And the devil took pride in that. The wicked people took pride in that. The devil was seeking through the sufferings to destroy Christ himself. And he was gleeful that he had brought the seed of the woman down to destruction. And finally had brought Jesus to be killed and removed out of the world. God used that suffering to point to the spiritual victory of Christ over sin. So Jesus now, immediately after the resurrection and the ascension into heaven, goes to the spirits who had persecuted the church so severely, and he declares now to them and to the devil, he has the victory. He has overcome the powers of sin and death. The devil and the church is not all-knowing. They're not able to know everything. Those spirits didn't know, nor had they seen that they had not accomplished their purpose. They assumed they had succeeded in destroying the church. Now to them, Jesus comes in order to justify his people and to declare his victory that he's attained over the devil, over death, and over hell. And Christ leaves them then with no excuse for their wickedness. The people of God, on the other hand, are comforted. Comforted in this knowledge that regardless of how much they suffered and how intense that suffering was, God was sovereign through it all. And that truly the long-suffering of God was evident as God was using it for good. So that already now, before the final judgment, when they will be vindicated, they have this encouragement that Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation. And even as Jesus heralded it to those who are examples of wickedness, he continues to herald it to the enemies of the church throughout all ages. The enemies of the church who rise up against the church, seeking her destruction. Christ makes clear, you will not succeed. I have laid down my life. My suffering was effective unto their salvation, and they will be preserved and kept to the very end. Colossians 2 verse 15 and other passages talk about Jesus gloriously triumphing over his enemies and making a show of them. Spoiling principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In other words, vengeance is mine. I have overcome. And so, beloved, that's our encouragement and comfort in the midst of the suffering that we endure as well. That suffering is a part of God's long-suffering to us word. God is sovereignly ordaining it for the good of his church and for her salvation. And that's evident from our text in verse 22 when it speaks that Christ is given an exalted place on the right hand of God. We know the wonder and the power of the ascension. Jesus now is justified and he now stands before the whole world as the glorious victor of salvation. 
He's given authority and might and power at God's right hand. Angels, authorities, and powers being made subject unto Him. Verse 22. His power expressed as the King of the creation. And our text refers here to the angels, the authorities, the powers, in order to emphasize His total authority. There is none above Him. He is authority. And everything has been placed under Him, including all the evil powers in hell itself. As such, he rules then the suffering of his church and the suffering of his people. And we are given to know that our suffering is temporary. It's not an expression of divine displeasure for sin. He already bore that. The victory of Christ is ours. He uses the reference to the flood. The flood was a type. Baptism was a picture of Christ and His cleansing of our sins. Peter directs us to see the flood as a picture of baptism. Now it's striking that in that reference, he emphasizes that we're saved by water in verse 20. In the past few weeks in catechism, we've emphasized that point, that God saved His church by water. And the emphasis of that is this. The enemy to the church was not the water. The enemy was the wicked world. And God used water to destroy that wicked world. He saved them in an ark, but He saved them by water. Water which washed away the sin of the world that then was. Similar to the picture of baptism as water washes away the sin of God's people. God's goal was not to save Noah from the water, but from the wicked men who threatened to destroy him. And the water of the flood outwardly destroyed all wickedness. But as we noticed in Catechism 2, it couldn't destroy all evil. It couldn't purge the heart. There still was sin in the natures of those eight individuals who were on the ark. And that became evident soon after. Noah committed sin. He gave himself over to drunkenness. Spiritual baptism with the blood of Jesus saves us not just from the outward water, as did the flood, but from the inward wickedness, that of our own conscience and hearts. It delivers us from sin. And that's the point here that the apostle is making. That spiritual baptism, though it's pictured with the outward, as circumcision in the Old Testament, sprinkling of baptism in the New Testament, the victory is not merely outward. It's a victory that's a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ being applied now to every one of His children. They have new life now in Him because He's the one who suffered on their behalf, who accomplished perfectly the victory and now gives that life and the joy and wonder of salvation. That true baptism, then, involves Christ providing us with a good conscience toward God. A good conscience is not one that doesn't prick us. A good conscience toward God is a conscience that's tender. It's sensitive to sin. It condemns us. It pricks us. It's a result of the new life, the new heart that is ours in Christ. And this tender, sensitive conscience is used by God to save and to deliver us. 
It's used by God to free us from the sins into which we would bind ourselves. This tender conscience is used by the Holy Spirit to bring us to repentance, to confess our sins, to cry out for mercy. This tender conscience pricks us and it motivates us to live new, thankful lives before God. We go away from the table, beloved, confessing the wonder of that suffering. Jesus suffered. And Jesus' suffering was to direct us to God, according to verse 18. For Christ also has once suffered that he might bring us to God. We were alienated from God due to our sin. Jesus took upon himself the suffering we deserved for sin in order that he might open the way into everlasting fellowship with God to all eternity. He takes us to himself. He embraces us with the embrace of everlasting love. He covers us with his blood. He justifies us. He sanctifies us. And he brings us, the unjust, to God. And gives us to know then the victory that's ours. A victory through suffering. You and I must suffer, beloved. We suffer for well-doing. We suffer because of righteousness' sake. We suffer because we know what's right. And we know the responsibility and calling that is ours to do that which is pleasing in the eyes of God. That suffering involves persecution, opposition. But we don't focus on our own struggles. We don't focus on our own sorrows. We focus on the suffering of Jesus Christ with thankfulness. Knowing and believing that His suffering made atonement. His suffering satisfied the justice of God. And therefore, we grow in our knowledge of sin, our hatred for sin, and our love for Jesus Christ. May we demonstrate that in thankfulness. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, may we be thankful children who know the wonder of the love of Jesus Christ on our behalf, a suffering that he willingly took upon himself by which he made payment for sin in our place powerfully and effectively so that there is therefore now no condemnation for us. May we live as thankful children of our Heavenly Father, showing forth thy praise all the days of our lives. Amen.